0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Thursday. I am Charlie Sykes. Uh, If you are new to this podcast, you should really consider subscribing. We've had an interesting week. Uh, Earlier in the week, historian Nicole Hemmer talked about the rise of the alternative conservative media and the death of, of Reaganism. Yesterday, we talked with Elliot Ackerman, veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. And today we are joined by James Homan, a columnist for the Washington Post, covers politics, policy, the law, and other matters. Welcome back to the podcast, James. Great
1: to be with you, Charlie. Well, last time you were on
0: the podcast, we created a little bit of trouble um, because you were talking about the internal debate in the Biden White House about the forgiveness of student loans. We'll double back on that a little bit later. But I haven't done this lately. But I feel the need for a palate cleanser to start off. So Mike Lindell, my pillow guy, goes on. It doesn't matter where he was. And he's talking about he's still at it, by the way, you know, pushing his demented, debunked, insane, crazy whatever you want to say uh, ele- election lies but uh, he came up with an interesting new twist that uh, was so interesting that the governor of the state of Utah tweeted it out this is what mike lindell my pillow guy had to say about his most recent research into non-existent election fraud
1: you know i believe you have the ccp the globalists the uniparty i believe it's all one just happy family and and
0: uh, and we showed it on, on all the 50 states. You get to Utah
1: where there's no um, d- yeah. one d- a day, day election. It's all mail-in. It's pure crime. Nobody votes in Utah. Nobody, Brandon. It's all just made up. Nobody votes
0: in Utah. So Spencer Cox is the Republican governor of Utah who tweeted out this morning, big if true. Who <laughs> knew this about Utah, James? Really, it reminds, of, uh,
1: Giuliani. it reminds me of Rudy Giuliani telling Rusty Bowers, "We have our theories; we just need evidence." <laughs>
0: part of me feels a very infinitesimally small part of me feels a little bit guilty for dunking on Mike Lindell, who appears to be, let's say, wrestling with certain uh, challenges. I, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to speculate about his mental state right now, but. And I also think that it's for those of you wondering why even paying attention to my pillow guy, I regret to inform you that my pillow guy still is remarkably influential, uh, not just in the fever swamps. I mean, this is the, the moment we are in, James, is that in a rational universe, we would be able to ignore Mike Lindell, but we can't anymore.
1: He's at every Trump rally. He he you know, he <sighs> often speaks before trump and warms up the crowd this is this is someone who is not you know just babbling uh somewhere this is someone who has a, a influential following among people who may run for president again
0: yes no no kidding speaking of which the former president of the united states uh, put out a statement on truth social he's uh he, he woke up in a i would say a kind of a cranky mood today This is what he posted. This is the former president of the United States. Even though I am as innocent as a person can be, And despite my, capitalized, campaign being spied on by the radical left, the FISA court being lied to and defrauded, all of the many hoaxes and scams, capitalized, that were illegally placed on me by very sick and demented people, and without even mentioning, this is one sentence here, we're still in one the first sentence, by very sick and demented people, and without even mentioning the many crimes of Joe and Hunter Biden, all revealed in great detail in the laptop from hell, also capitalized. It looks more and more like the fake news media is pushing hard for the sleaze, capitalized, to do something that should not be done. Exclamation point. Um, Everyone needs an editor, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) They do. So I think it's safe to assume, you know, feel free to disagree with me. I I think it's safe to assume that that is unfiltered Donald Trump. That, that that was not written by a staffer that was not edited. This is what was going through his
1: mind at Mar-a-Lago or wherever he is when he woke up this morning. You really need like a key to keep track of a lot of these buzzwords that Trump throws around. Uh, it's it, it's hard to you know, if you, you if you're not watching Newsmax all day, it's not obvious what half the stuff he's talking about means. That's a really good
0: point. You you do sort of have to have a, a Rosetta Stone of Mad Libs, you know, <laughs> phrases that are out there just sort of randomly throwing. But somebody tweeted out, looks like somebody woke up scared. I don't know whether you're scared or not, but it 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 does have this sort of ranty defensive feel to it, you know, even though I am as innocent as a person can be. And then he just it's like this festival of the airing of all of his grievances. I mean, he he just felt the need to just download everything. So he's saying it, it looks more and more like the fake news media is pushing hard for the sleaze to do something that should not be done. Do you know offhand who the sleaze is?
1: I think he's saying the media is pushing for him to be indicted. Yeah, but who is the sleaze? Uh, well, that's—I uh, I assume we'll find out. It's never the—the the last we'll hear. <laughs> Biden. Uh, you know, he's probably. Uh, maybe he's referring to Merrick Garland. <laughs> yeah. See, I don't think the sleaze works with Merrick Garland. It maybe. Doesn't. Maybe.
0: Okay. See, we have many listeners who so I'm sure know the difference to this. Okay, so uh, let's talk about uh, where we're at in the in the political world right now. Your latest column comes after Tuesday's primaries in New York with all the caveats that special elections uh, can be overanalyzed and because they are low turnout affairs. We did get some interesting, I think, signals about what's going on within the Democratic Party. So talk to me a little bit about what, what you saw in New York. You wrote, when it comes to politics, New York City is to Democrats as Florida is to Republicans. It predicts the future. And so what happened this week in the Empire State is something of a harbinger, For the party of joe biden
1: what are you seeing yeah so let's unpack two things The you know there were the special elections which is you know republicans versus democrats and and we can talk about those but there were also these primaries democrats facing democrats very messy redistricting process democrats overreached tried to draw an exceedingly generous map it was struck down by the courts and it ended up creating this mess where you know Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, is in a primary against Carolyn Maloney, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Lots of members of Congress moving around, uh, but this is the place where four years ago Alexandria Ocasio Cortez beat Joe Crowley, who was the number four in leadership, the chairman of the Democratic Caucus. Two years ago, Jamal Bowman uh, beat Elliot Engel, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, both Bowman and AOC and, and others, members of the Democratic Socialists of America. And I do think that that reflected where the base of the party was at that moment. But things have changed. You know, you saw Joe Biden become the Democratic standard bearer. Last year, you saw Eric Adams, a former Republican and a former New York police captain, become mayor. And then on Tuesday, you saw sort of the establishment, for lack of a better word, strike back. Sean Patrick Maloney, the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, won by a more than two-to-one margin against this woman, Alessandra Biagi, who's Crushed a state me. senator who, yeah. who very much of the AOC mold, had AOC support, and, and really got smoked. The Maloney said on Tuesday night, mainstream won and common sense won. And then the the race that I was focused on, in Lower Manhattan and sort of brownstone Brooklyn was this contest with Dan Goldman, who anyone who watches MSNBC will yeah. see him a lot. Uh, the Former the, prosecutor, uh, the yeah. chief counsel, yeah, yeah. F- I worked for Pre Barara yeah. for the Southern District of New York, and then worked for Adam Schiff as the chief counsel on the first Ukrainian impeachment. And he was running as a sort of unapologetic moderate, spoke critically of the Green New Deal, opposed Medicare for All, spoke out against expanding the Supreme Court as undemocratic. At one point, he even said he was open to restrictions on abortion once the fetus is viable. He walked that back and said he misspoke. And instead, you know, he focused his campaign on saying, look, my background prepares me well to run interference next year when House Republicans are going to impeach Joe Biden and go after Hunter Biden. And you want me on that wall fighting against that. And it was a situation where the left was fragmented, uh, you know, sort of along racial lines in some way. Uh, There were three people who had all previously had the support of the Working Families Party, uh, an Asian-American who'd immigrated from Taiwan, an African-American and a Latina uh, who's Puerto Rican. And so they they fragmented the vote, uh, combined those three hardcore leftists, got about 60% of the vote. And Dan Goldman uh, was able to win the moderate with 26% of the vote. But a win is a win. And and I think it is a reflection of the, the desire to have a fighter they see Dan Goldman as a fighter, but also they do sort of care about pragmatism and being effective. And I do think that there's fatigue with sort of the the squad. You saw it in my mm-hmm. home state of Minnesota two weeks ago now, Ilhan Omar, um, oh, yeah. who championed that effort to defund the police uh, and literally get rid of the Minneapolis Police Department. She barely got uh, re-elected in her primary, and it was entirely because of of her lack of support for the police. So I think that there is a pendulum that's swinging back hard after twenty eighteen and twenty twenty, and we saw that in those primaries.
0: There was an interesting little twist in that primary that was won by Dan Goldman. Um, Donald Trump, at right near the end, uh, sort of sarcastically endorsed Dan
1: Goldman. Which was just weird. Yeah. He, right before the, the final debate that the candidates all had televised in primetime in New York last week, Trump put on Truth Social that Dan Goldman is a great guy and hard worker and fighting for America. Has a wonderful I mean, future ahead. Obviously, <laughs> tongue in cheek and obviously reflects, you know, he, he, what's ironic is that for a lot of the same reasons that the left didn't like Goldman, Trump fears Goldman, which is that he's independently wealthy. He's the heir to the Levi Strauss fortune. He's worth like $260 million, Mm. highly educated, went to Stanford Law School. And, you know, he is a very telegenic, aggressive prosecutor who's put a lot of bad guys in jail. And it was funny, though, because during that debate, two of the three leading contenders, both emphasized and sort of seized on the Trump endorsement as if it was authentic. And it was sort of preposterous because it obviously wasn't. But I guess unsurprising, you can never, never discount stupid. No, no, you, you can't. I mean, you, you wrote about, you know, one of his opponents, Mondaire Jones.
0: Who, who moved to the area to run for the open seats that it was horrifying to be on the same stage with somebody endorsed by Trump and Goldman, of course, fired back. The fact that my opponent seems to actually take him uh, seriously just shows how little he knows Donald Trump. So one of the other results was this uh, this sort of epic battle between uh, Jerry Nadler against a Democrat, uh, Carolyn Maloney. I mean, these are, these are sort of iconic figures who've been around forever in New York politics. Uh, and and uh, Jerry Nadler
1: uh, won that uh, relatively easily as as well. Is that part of the same pattern? It absolutely is. This is the establishment striking back. You know, Chuck Schumer endorsed Nadler. It was sort of the battle of the Upper East Side versus the Upper West Side. But I, I also think in fitting with the same pattern, it's also a rejection, Charlie, of identity politics. Carolyn Maloney mm-hmm. went all in on being a woman. And, and I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, she literally said, a woman needs to hold the seat. No one doubted Jerry Nadler's, liberalism and commitment to abortion rights or, or what have you. Uh, but she really leaned hard on uh, on identity politics. And I think even liberal voters in Manhattan are kind of tired of, of that kind of politics. So the other
0: uh, race that got a lot of attention was a special election won by a Democrat, a Democrat Pat Ryan, who won in New York's 19th congressional uh, district. And it was it was a narrow victory, but it's part of this pattern that uh, that uh, pundits are seeing that Democrats are doing better than Joe Biden in all of these special elections post Dobbs. And so I want to get your take on all of that, because, of course, there was a big, big question mark, you know, would the overturning of Roe versus Wade, would it have an effect on the midterms? Would it galvanize Democratic voters? And uh, there's uh, more than a few data points now suggesting that, yeah, it is working. Uh, It it is it is moving. And you're seeing in district after district, even districts that are won in in special election uh, races that are won by Republicans, their margins are actually being uh, cut rather substantially. So is there a Dobbs backlash that is playing out right now in the midterm elections? And how big is it, do you think?
1: Yeah, I sort of, I imagine John Roberts at the Chevy Chase Club telling his friends, see, I told them so. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's very much a, a dog catching up with the truck sort of phenomenon. And frankly, you know, I've been talking to Republican and Democratic strategists and on both sides, the operative class underestimated the effect that overturning Roe would actually have. Obviously, Democrats hoped it would, but they didn't expect that there would actually be the energy, frankly, because there wasn't, you know, after uh, the Supreme Court vacancy in 2016, uh, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, you just have never seen Democrats activate, you know, more than some activists. But in this case, it really is driving people to the polls. You know, the National Republican Congressional Committee had a statement yesterday that said majorities are decided in November, not August. And... I thought that was a good line. And there's something to that. You know, we'll see if the energy holds. But it's now been two months since Dobbs. There have been four special elections and Democrats have won all four of them. They've overperformed Joe Biden's approval rating. And a lot of it is because there was a big enthusiasm gap earlier in the year. I think people were sort of frustrated with Democrats for not getting anything done. Joe Biden's too old. You know, Trump sort of had relative to Trump drifted away from the spotlight for a little while. And now Trump's back reminding Democrats why they were so agitated in 2018 and 2020. And Roe is gone showing that a lot of this is, uh, you know, this isn't just rhetoric that we've heard for 50 years. And so I don't think that this fundamentally changes the underlying dynamics, which is that seven in 10 Americans still think the country's on the wrong track. Joe Biden's approval rating is in the low forties. It's lower than Donald Trump's was in 2018. Three quarters of Americans think we're in a recession. And all of that is just really bad for the party in power. And it's, a you know, Republicans only need to pick up five seats to win control of the House. The Senate is 50-50. Even if it's not a red wave, you know, basically a ripple could tip control of of both chambers to Republicans. And I I still expect that to happen. Yeah, I mean, you can drown
0: in a a bathtub. So let's talk about this because uh, I think it's always important to disaggregate the wish casting from the actual data. And so, uh, you know, yeah, there are some good signs for Democrats. I mean, they were averaging a four-point overperformance in the House special since Roe was overturned, a 10-point shift from where they were before. Uh, But uh, there can be the irrational exuberance, um, especially when you consider that the elections are not decided by these national poll numbers, they're decided by the swing districts. And, you know, whether you want to blame gerrymandering or whatever, you know, the, this is a very, very challenging environment. So let's, let's talk about that. There does seem to be, and how do you explain this, the, you know, decoupling, if that's the right term um, of between these democratic poll numbers uh, would show them to be quite competitive in the generic congressional ballot and Joe Biden's approval rating. I mean, you would think that with Joe Biden's approval rating being, you know, minus 20, uh, that they would be being blown out. So there does appear to be sort of a dissociation of Democratic candidates with Joe Biden. I mean, are you seeing the same thing or is that a mirage? I mean,
1: I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, that's yeah. absolutely true. But we saw it in 2014, too. The races that decided control of the Senate that year were in red states like Arkansas and Alaska and West Virginia. Those Democratic candidates all outperformed Barack Obama by seven to nine points. But that wasn't enough to win. I think the other big difference is that Donald Trump won't go away. Uh, The criminal investigation, Trump saying he wants to run again in 2024, Trump wading into all these primaries and elevating fringe candidates, that really matters. You think back to 2010, I can't remember the number of times that I heard in Barack Obama's stump speech in 2010, him essentially attack George W. Bush. He didn't say it by name, but he Mm -hmm. said, you know, the Republicans drove our country into a ditch and now they want the car keys back. And, and that just, it sounded very stale in, in October of 2010, because Bush hadn't been in power for two years. Democrats had had a supermajority in the Senate had done all this stuff. They, they owned the economy. And Obama failed in trying to blame Bush. And, and voters just didn't buy that in 2010. It's easier for Democrats in 2022 to blame Trump and uh, attack Trump because Trump is out there every day. Uh, and it's still a deeply polarizing figure. Uh, so I think that that it, it is you know, has helped close the enthusiasm gap. But the truth is both sides are enthusiastic to vote. Republicans are still very motivated. Democrats are just as motivated now as Republicans were a few months ago. And I think we're in this new era in American politics where we're just going to have really high turnout elections. As you know, you know, typically turnout drops hugely from the presidential to the midterm. It still will drop. You know, we're not going to see 81 million Democratic voters or 74 million Republican voters uh, in the midterms. But I I definitely think we're going to see higher turnout than we saw in 2010 or 2014, maybe even than 2018. And it's because both parties feel like the fate of the country is on the line. So in some ways, it's, it's good for democracy when people are engaged in voting. In other ways, it's sort of scary because it means people think that they have to vote because the future of the country depends on it. You know, but frankly, we're likely to see the the highest midterm election turnout in a, in a century. You know, in 2018, it was the highest since 1912. And, uh, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see numbers like that again. We saw huge <clears throat> turnout in Virginia last year in the governor's race compared to every previous gubernatorial election in Virginia.
0: So I agree with you about the House. I don't see there's really any way that the uh, Democrats hold on to the House, but the Senate seems to be a very different story, and Mitch McConnell seems to be seeing the same thing um, with sort of the euphemism about candidate quality, which is which is a way of acknowledging that you have the senatorial candidate clown car. You know, we've talked about this before, about whether the rules have changed, but uh, Republicans have blown winnable uh, Senate elections in the past by having uh, kooks on, on, on the ballot. And this year, you have this uh, this class of candidates uh, that seem really intent on snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. You have Herschel Walker in uh, in in Georgia. You have Doctor Oz in Pennsylvania. You have uh, J.D. Vance, who's underperforming, uh, maybe not sufficiently underperforming, but you know it's now becoming a little bit more of a question mark. I think that just got moved from you know, on the crystal ball from uh, likely Republican to leans Republican. You have Blake Masters in in Arizona. So. Let's let's talk about at least about this, the 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 fact that, you know, Donald Trump endorsed candidates did well in the primaries, but now are not playing that well in a general election. And that could cost. I mean, do you agree? I mean, that could cost
1: Republicans what should be a pretty easy shot to take control of the Senate. Totally. Lots to unpack there. I agree with everything you said. You know, in in House races, typically the R or the D after your name matters more because you're less defined, you're less known. In a Senate race, you know, statewide contest, you can define yourself and your opponent in a way you just really struggle to in a House race, with the exception being a special election where it's the only race and everyone is focused on it and there's lots of ads about it. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons Democrats have been able to outperform. I feel guilty saying this, but I don't really trust the polls anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I put so much stock in and I admire so much someone like Charles Franklin at, at Marquette. And, you know, these are serious, really independent guys. But I just, I mean, after the last couple of elections, I have a hard time putting stock in polls that show Democrats so comfortably ahead. I just don't feel like there has been soul searching in the polling community to not repeat the mistakes of 2020 yeah. and 2018 and 2016. And so I, I've I, all well been there. Maybe the polls are right, but I get pause when I see, you know, Mandela Barnes uh, in your home state up more uh, over Ron Johnson than Tony Evers over Tim Michaels. Uh, it, it just doesn't quite, make sense to me. This is the problem with the polls is, is, you know, after
0: 2016, there was all of this talk, well, we are going to get it right, you know, and then 2018, there were some significant misses, uh, and a lot of, you know, irrational exuberance, you know, and, you know, you and I were talking before we b- began, I would, you know, it would be interested to go back to a lot of the punditry back from uh, August of 2018, where we were told, you know, Democrats were going to win in you know, the governorship in Georgia, in Florida, Beto O'Rourke was going to beat Ted Cruz, and that turned out to be wrong, and then we get to twenty twenty and after all of these years of you know talking about how we 're going to fix the problem with the polls, the reality is that we didn't and I share your reaction to all of that, and also the the fact that you know what we've seen is that you know where you're at in August does not necessarily mean you know after somebody has dropped ten or twenty million dollars worth of opera research on you where you're going to be in November, and that that's you know, I mean, I'm 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 watching obviously very closely the Senate race here in in Wisconsin, and I have argued, and I may be wrong about this, that I thought that Mandela Barnes would be a very vulnerable candidate against Ron Johnson, and of course, people are saying, well, what about these polls showing that he's seven points up? And I think the only response is, well, just wait. You know, <laughs> get back to me in October how how this is how
1: this is playing out. Yeah, I totally agree with that, and I think. You know, one of the things that has been problematic for Republicans is complacency. I think Republicans were complacent and believed that there was going to be this huge red wave. Donors weren't that engaged. Uh, it's You hear a lot of complaints, uh, I think, from people who, in the Trump era, uh, Democrats were able to raise so much small-dollar money, and on the Republican side, Trump just sucks up all the money, which goes to his packs and operations. Uh, but So I think that this these special elections may counterintuitively help galvanize Republican donors and voters. So let's
0: talk about student loan forgiveness, which you and I have talked about in the past. There was a really intense debate within the White House. They finally did it, uh, forgiving $10,000 in student loans for families who make up to $250,000. I guess it's also forgiving up to uh, $20,000 of debt for borrowers who had received uh, Pell grants. Progressive Twitter is, of course, celebrating how wonderful this is, but I think Politico's playbook summed up some of the blowback, the centrist revolt against Biden's uh, student debt plan. So, James Homan, how does this play out politically? We'll get to the policy in a moment, but politically, w- what is your take?
1: Maybe it, it helps activate and galvanize some young voters and some progressives, but I think that they were going to be there anyway. Uh, I think Dobbs did that. I I think that the overwhelming backlash is, you know, I I heard from a bunch of friends yesterday from back home in Minnesota, from Wisconsin, from other places who said, I voted for Joe Biden in 2020. I'm not going to vote for him again. This is outrageous. And uh, I think that the politics of envy and the politics of resentment are very strong. Moreover, I think that this this is a reflection of Democrats' becoming the party of the college-educated elite, which is not a a coalition that can win in the Electoral College and in national elections. And Democrats get more and more of their votes from college graduates, and so they're appealing to that constituency. Uh, But, you know, you hear all the time about how Democrats need to figure out how to do better with rural voters and non-college-educated whites. And this kind of thing, making truck drivers uh, pay the the student loans for, uh, you know, young grads from Harvard Law School, uh, just it it just triggers so much frustration uh, and, and outrage. And I do think it makes it hard for moderates and centrists to to win as Democrats. You know, this is
0: one thing, though, that Joe Biden seemed to get that. He up does. until recently right i mean he was i mean all the reports that i've seen your reporting would suggest that he was very skeptical first of all of the politics of the, as as well as his his power as president to do this by by fiat i mean that 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 legal question is uh uh somewhat complicated a year ago nancy pelosi was saying the president can't do that joe biden was saying i don't have the power to do that so he's decided he did have the power to do it but also I mean, he was reluctant to ask uh, non-college educated uh, middle class voters to pay hundreds of billions of dollars to
1: bail out college students with debts. Yeah, the politics and the policy are different. I actually, yeah, I right. think the politics are bad. I think the policy is even worse.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think this is just terrible policy. Larry Tribe tweeted last night. This is, you know, so many of my former students are really going to be helped out from that. He's a professor at Harvard Law School.
0: Harvard Law School.
1: Harvard Law School (laughs) grads are not the people who need help from the government. And I don't think it's legal. There was a background call yesterday where a senior administration official was asked uh, about the legal authorities and answered, I'm not a lawyer. You'll have to talk to lawyers at the education department or the justice department. Clearly was not the intent of the emergency powers. Unemployment among college educated people is 2%. Uh, it, there's You can't argue that there's an emergency that necessitates the postponement. Just the cost here that is being put on the government and the taxpayers negates all of the deficit reduction over 10 years in the Inflation Reduction Act. This is going to create this terrible dynamic where future students are going to want their debt forgiven and are going to assume that it will be and therefore yeah. will take on more debt. It's going to lead to more inflation because... Colleges are going to be able to jack up tuition uh, and it, it just is such terrible policy uh, and it's so un-American uh, to, to give these bailouts to people. If, if the income threshold means that, you know, if you're just out of law school and you're an associate at, you know, some white shoe firm and you're not making a ton of money yet, but you're going to make partner in a couple of years uh, and then be making seven figures, you're still going to get the advantages of of this. You know, bailout, handout. it just, it, it really is. I think one of the dumbest things that Joe Biden has done as president both politically and substantively.
0: Well, I agree with you there. I, I saw it described as an unforced error, but of course it wasn't unforced. This was uh, really a top priority of, of of progressives. But I do think that it shows kind of a, a blinkered view of how this plays with the rest of the electorate. I, and I, as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, I think progressive Twitterverse has no idea how this is actually playing in the real world here. I mean, that's, you know, that's part of the problem. I mean, it is, it is massively expensive. It is, it is regressive. And part of the problem is that it's a one-time fix. I keep coming back to this. This is a one-time fix. It does nothing for future borrowers, does nothing to deal with the higher education cartel. It does not reform higher education in any way. And this is why it's not playing well. Also, I was really struck by the number of Democrats in swing districts who um came out against this yesterday. I mean, for people who think, well, you know, Republicans are, are, are opposed. Well, of course they're opposed. But the real political problem, I think, is uh, is the fact that, uh, is, is that a lot of Democrats uh, who are on the ballot this year understand that this is
1: exactly the wrong message at the moment. Yes, yeah, so we talked about the clown car of Republican Senate candidates who got their nominations because of Trump. I'm super interested in the Colorado Senate race, where the GOP nominee is Joe O'Day, who's a moderate, rejects Trump. He's, I think, pro-choice. And I really think he could win in this environment. Uh, And his opponent is Michael Bennett. uh, And Michael Bennett yesterday, the Democratic senator, said that he wished this uh, Biden program had been more targeted and uh, to help the needy. And I, I do think that that's just a reflection of how even in a, you know, very highly college-educated state like Colorado, this is just if someone like Michael Bennett sees the the politics are very bad for Democrats. Well, I you know, Politico rounded up
0: some of the reaction. I mean, so you have uh, embattled uh, Democratic Senator uh, Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada saying, I don't agree with today's executive action because it doesn't address the root problems that make college unaffordable. Uh, you have a uh, a uh, Democratic uh, Congressman from Maine, Jared Golden, who says the decision by the president is out of touch with what the majority of the American people want from the White House. These are these are Democrats, and it's uh, it's I mean it's quite it's quite a list. Uh, Chris uh, Pappas, Democrat from New Hampshire, another swing state. This announcement by President Biden is is no way to make policy and sidesteps Congress and our oversight and fiscal responsibility. Any plan to address student debt should go through the legislative process. Uh, Sharice Davids, Democrat of Kansas. Wow. It's not how I would have ad- I mean, it goes on. Uh, Tim Ryan, who is uh, you know, the great Democratic hope uh for Senate in Ohio says, Well, there's no doubt that a college education should be about opening opportunities, waiving debt for those already on a trajectory to financial security, sends the wrong message to the millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. And then you mentioned Michael Bennett also. I remember extraordinary that you would have that kind of controversy. So what
1: changed Joe Biden's mind? You know, he he was getting pressured by the left and, you know, pollsters in his orbit, like Celinda Lake, who does work for him, were saying that young people weren't going to turn out at the levels that Democrats need unless they did this. There was a lot of pressure on the White House from the Democratic candidates in Georgia, which we talked about last time I was on, And so I think, cumulatively, there was a sense they had to do something. The extension of the suspension and payments expired on uh, the end of August. And so, you know, that's the weird timing. Uh, You know, Biden is in Delaware. And the whole thing is just... Uh, weird, but I think Biden was just worn down by pressure from his left flank.
0: Well, and as you pointed out the last time you were here on the podcast, this was a, a very you know top-notch issue for Stacey Abrams and Warnock from Georgia who were really turning up the pressure. And of course, we know that Chuck Schumer was on board with a much bigger forgiveness. He and Elizabeth Warren were talking not just about uh, forgiving $10,000, they were talking about up to $50,000, which, again, kind of makes your head hurt because you know, every study would show that the vast majority of those benefits would go to the, you know, upper income individuals. So to your earlier point, this is less about relieving people in economic distress than it feels like a payoff to what they regard as the democratic base. I mean, and and it comes off that way
1: too. Yeah. This is not about, you know, helping the middle class or low income. It just, it feels like a a payoff. And it to me, it comes back to the politics of envy and resentment. And, you know, I just think well, about work, you yeah. know, it's, it's complicated, but I, you know, for people who worked minimum wage jobs through college to not take on debt like me, it is annoying. <laughs> well, it is. And that's just not envy
0: and resentment. That's also this sort of fundamental principle of, you know, you work hard, you play by the rules, you pay your debts, um, you know, and, and that's, you know, that should be the way the system works. And I think the, a lot of centrist Democrats are still hearkening back to that, which is there is why they're opposed to all of this. So I do think that there is that. I mean, from the Republican point of view, from Republican candidate point of view, I think that they were feeling that they had kind of a little bit had lost their footing temporarily there. They, they you know, were, were caught a little bit flat footed by the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Democrats seem to be kind of on a roll. Dobbs is working against them. This feels like a gift. I'm a Republican candidate. I go at the unfairness of this as well as, okay, this is inflationary. Now, whether it's, not, whether it's inflationary or not, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic on this. I, I, I don't know. But when you have people like Larry Summers saying it's inflationary, when you have the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for Obama saying that it's inflationary, this strikes me as, as pretty good
1: fodder. To use against Democrats, I mean it's it's devastating coming from him. <laughs> I, yeah. mean, the, the, I don't. You're the expert on on the cartel of higher education. I mean, you've written so powerfully about this. Written books on it. Like I, I just this is not as you noted a few minutes ago. Do anything to address the root causes of colleges jacking up tuition, and in fact, I think like adds to the incentive structure for colleges to just charge more because they know. Students will take on bigger debt loads and they can get away with charging $50,000 for what really, you know, is $20,000 worth of of education.
0: And of course, that's been the story of the last 50 years of higher education. And and look, I want to make it clear that I do think that there's a crisis with the higher education bubble, the the obscene costs uh, and, and really, I think, unjustifiable cost of a college degree in our society. It's a problem. But the problem is the cost. And a one time fix that does nothing about that doesn't solve the problem. OK, so I think we've we've established where we stand on that. You know, overshadowing everything we're talking about, of course, of these ongoing investigations in, into Donald Trump, and including the search, the rather remarkable search at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago and the back and forth about whether or not the affidavit is going to be released short term. Uh, it, it appears that the Republicans have decided they're going to rally around Donald Trump. But where do you think we're at? I mean, there's a lot going on here. What are you keeping your eye most closely
1: on? One of the columns high on my list that I want to write and, and just haven't gotten to yet is that I really just don't think this is going to be helpful in the long term for Donald Trump. I think this narrative that this is going to help him lock down the Republican nomination in 2024 is just, to me, it feels silly I understand the short-term rally around the flag effect, but the Republicans who want to run for president in 2024 aren't going to be dissuaded by this. And the reality is it's just there is real Trump fatigue on the right. People are just tired of this stuff. And Trump can rally some supporters by saying this is an attack on you, not on me. He can raise money off of it. You know, and I guess some of it ultimately depends on if the reports are true that there was information about special access programs, that's really damning. If it was just the Kim Jong-un love letters, less so, you know, so you kind of have to have the goods. But it's never good to be under FBI investigation. And it's true of lots of different members of Congress who have, you know, in the short term, there's tons of examples of whether local officials or congressmen who, you know, get raided by the FBI and get reelected while the investigation is still ongoing and then a year or two later take a plea deal because the case is so strong and overwhelming. So it's not unusual for there to be a short-term rally around the politician effect. I just, I cannot see this ultimately being helpful to to Trump in 2024.
0: No. And there's so much we don't know, which is also one of the things that I I thought was interesting watching all the Republican elected officials uh, rally around the flag this would be a perfect opportunity for them to maybe issue one statement and then to keep their powder dry because you don't know what is next. There are so many different fronts here right now. I talked to one Republican who said well that actually helps him because you know there's there's so much people can't keep track of it you know one of the things that has worked for Donald Trump is that he tells so many lies that you can't keep track of the lies there are you know so many outrages that you lose the track of the outrages and this is a reality right i mean somebody like Ron Johnson will say 150 outrageous things. And then when, you know, we ask the average voter about it, they go, yeah, I I know he said something, but I can't remember any of them. So, you know, for Donald Trump, he's got possible charges in in Georgia. He's got the January 6th. He's got tax issues going on in New York. He's got the documents. But I agree with you. At a certain point, it's just the weight of it, the exhaustion. And, you know, I, I do think that Sometimes the polls are are slow in picking this up that they may tell a pollster, yes, I support Donald Trump, but people are going, oh, man, how how long do I have to do this? How long do I have to carry this, you know, thousand pound bag of shit around?
1: Especially when there are conservative alternatives who don't have a thousand pound bag of shit that they're dragging behind them.
0: Well, that's right. Right. Speaking of irrational exuberance, and by the way, every time I think of irrational exuberance, you know, I, I do think of all the predictions, you know, in 2018 about, about Stacey Abrams, about the governor's race in, in Florida. I can't even remember what the name of the Democrat was, but that turned An- out badly. Ansel that turned out very badly. And of course, <laughs> Beto O'Rourke. I'm seeing some of this, you know, Charlie Crist could take down Ron DeSantis. I want to raise my hand here and say, I think that is highly unlikely. What do you
1: think? um, Charlie Crist is going to have the distinction of losing statewide elections as a Republican, an independent, and a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that
0: note, James Holman. James, thank you so much for joining me on the Bulwark podcast today. My pleasure, Charlie. Always fun to chat. James Holman is a columnist for the Washington Post. He covers politics, policy, law, and other matters. Always fun to have you back on the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Today's Bulwark podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.